Hello, DanceWell listeners. This is Ellie Kushner, and welcome to episode 77, Attention and Focus. I came to dance as a fairly hyper child. I was not incapable of focusing, but dance was really the only thing that integrated me wholly and completely. To this day, I would say that in addition to the delight I derive from organizing my body through space to music, the way that dance can refine and collect my attention is profoundly satisfying. As a teacher, I have found it both fascinating and challenging to watch students struggle with attention and then attempt to coach them to be present and integrated. Claire Gus West introduced me to Gabrielle Wolf's research on attention at a Nye Adams conference several years ago, and I found that very helpful. I have since had the opportunity to get to know Claire more, and I'm delighted to have her here on the podcast to share her knowledge of this topic and the subject of her newly released book, Attention and Focus in Dance. Claire Gus West is a former professional dancer, choreographer, holistic health practitioner, and author specializing in the integration of holistic health and dance. Claire's innovative work translates recent scientific research findings on attentional focus for direct application in professional, vocational, and inclusive dance practice. Supported by her Eastern Movement practice, she provides mindful attention and focus strategies that harness mind, energy, and effort to empower dancers, giving them the edge and the tools to enhance their own physical and mental performance and achieve their best. As co-founder and director of the Dance and Creative Wellness Foundation, launched with the support of the Dutch National Ballet, and chair of the Dance for Health Committee of the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science. She is an international advocate of the well-being benefits of dance and its role in innovative preventive health. Finally, a shout out to the smart students of Wayne State for inspiring this episode. You are not alone in finding it very difficult to sustain attention during virtual dance training in 2020. Hang in there. You got this. Buckle your seatbelt. On this episode, nutrition, life coach, dance and performance, psychological training. And today you are in for attraction. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Ellie. And this is uh, greetings from Zurich in Switzerland, in fact. Beautiful. All right, so let's dive right in um, to attention. These first questions are always the hardest, the biggest, toughest questions. Can you define this idea of attention for us? Yes, of course. Um, in fact, that's one of the first things that I attempted to do or um, based on the knowledge of lots of other very wise people to attempted to do at the beginning of the book there. The of focus, let's take them separately, attention and focus first of all. Focus has really got a single stimulus sense to it, so it's the act of really concentrating on a single stimulus. Whereas attention is actually a process, so it's the process of attending to something. 
and it involves the act of selecting, sustaining the attention, and also the very necessary filtering of stimuli um, that don't support best the task at hand. So those are the two very different things for me. And then attentional focus, that expression, I've always associated that with um, science and research. In fact, it's not something that we really say, for instance, in Eastern movement practice. And um, that's really the ability to sustain a strategy, whether that's a strategy given, uh, you know, self imposed strategy or a coach guided strategy um, on to focus the attention on the task and with imagery or with cues that will support that task. So for me that's really the applied you know, in practice term attentional focus. Also as part of our sort of introduction to this topic we should probably talk about Gabrielle Wolf, right? So, uh, so for those who are not familiar, um, would you like to sort of introduce her work and a, a little summary of, of her vast studies? Okay, it's, it's certainly Dr. Gabriella Wolf, and she's based at the University of Las Vegas, Nevada, um, although she is German. And she has dedicated more than 20 years to the study of attentional focus or a focus of attention in um, motor learning and motor skills. Um, so the research basically, if I can um, summarize, um, will not do her justice in a couple of seconds, of course, a couple of minutes here. But um, she describes two types of approaches to the control of movement. And uh, both of them are control approaches. And we have a choice uh, which one we might use, but one is advantageous over the other. So um, one of the choices we might make, one of the strategies, is going to bring immediate benefits in terms of physical enhancement, like power, speed, precision, balance, stamina, energy, and even cognitive reserve for other multitasking and other skills. So these are termed, stop me when you want to, <laughs> these are termed um, internal focus and external focus. And I'm going to preface this straight away that these are really limiting terminologies from human movement science. And I spend most of my time with teachers and with dancers really trying to define and describe exactly what these two options are. Do you want to also talk about um, your collaborations with Dr. Wolf? So the, I'm primarily a artist, teaching artist, dancer, choreographer, so really not a scientist um, or dance scientist. But I came across the work of Dr. Gabriella Wolf about, let's say, about 12 years ago. And what was fascinating for me about her work was that it supported all of my 20 years knowledge of Eastern movement practice. So there was a direct correlation between the research findings and what um, Eastern movement practice, let's say ancient wisdom, uh, suggested about attention and focus. So I actually just simply wrote to her to thank her for her <laughs> body of knowledge, which is something very typical of me, um, which struck up a friendship. 
and we set about to, we did an early study in 2014 on classical ballet dancers because I wanted to confirm some of the things I thought. I believed that in dance we don't really have an attentional strategy or mental training. So we set about just to discover what were classical ballet dancers, professional classical ballet dancers thinking or cueing themselves in, uh, we took four traditional movements. Uh, and I'll just give you the lo and behold. Lo and behold, <laughs> there was absolutely totally clear that even at professional level, it was pretty random how dancers were cueing themselves and some were cueing themselves quite um, spontaneously and intuitively um, in an in a optimal way. But the vast majority were using huge amounts of kind of like teaching feedback in order to cue high performance, which as we know is really detrimental to the performance. So anyway, lack, total lack of strategy or attention to that aspect of our high performance. Um, and it's gone since then, she's continually supported um, the work and been you know, just very, very encouraging with uh, what we're managing to do to integrate attention and focus uh, theories, research and studies into professional practice. That's great. You've already mentioned so many things that I'm eager to talk more in depth about. Um, but I just want to talk about one more thing in our sort of introduction to the topic, which you've just hinted at, which is this um, idea of Eastern movement traditions. So practices like Tai Chi or Qigong or mar certain mm -hmm. martial arts forms, um, which you said you had a you know, couple decades of experience with. Yes, of course. There's no um, formal relationship in that there isn't research, sports science or human movement science research um, uh, spearheaded by Gabriella Wolf in Eastern movement practice. Although for the last 10 years I've been telling her this is absolutely amazing that your findings totally concur with what is 5,000 years of um, high performance practice. Um, so it seems to be like me that's fascinated by that. But the, the parallels then are um, Obviously, many of us understand that Eastern movement practice is involving mind and attention, energy, breath, as well as things like uh, movement form and, and movement enchaînement and, and routines, let's say. And what Eastern movement practice does is start goes, I'm, going to say, I'm speaking of what we call the family of Qigong, Tai Chi, Kung Fu, which is a related family of movement and a kind of progression, a movement progression. Um, and you start incredibly slowly um, by working interior, so in working on understanding how to manage energy, how to facilitate that with the breath, and how to quieten the mind and really work with the attention. So those all come first, really, before complex movement sequences. Um, so that is the first kind of level. Um, then uh, in Tai Chi, so that's Qigong really that focuses on that. Um, I'm going to call it inner, but of course that's not internal focus, we'll find out. Um, then we'll go to uh, moving in more complex sequences. Um, and 
still maintaining that clarity of attention and uh, use of energy and breath within the work. And the very like pinnacle is something like Kung Fu, which I would liken to classical ballet, although you might not see the similarities. But the fluidity, power, precision uh, that's required uh, with minimum effort is, is an incredible parallel, plus the fact that you're usually working with a partner and so there's an external um, attentional need there. So there, there's lots of parallels with dance anyway, but the desired development is with Eastern arts is actually starting therefore with the mind relationship to body before the, let's call it motor control. And um, what that does is means that we can strengthen all those skills before we start worrying about coordination of limbs and, and kinesthetic memory for you know, large chunks of material, etc. All right, so now that we've sort of laid the groundwork, I'd love to get into some of the practical applications in dance. We have um, just off the air talked about our shared relationship to this science material as as educators so I'd love to get into that um, and I think we should start with um, just the basics what do dancers need to know about this idea of attention what are the the most critical pieces I Okay, so let's go back a little bit to Gabriella Wolf's uh, findings and research. And as we know, I won't keep repeating myself, but they concur with Eastern movement practice. So I, I won't keep repeating that. So the first thing is, is that we've got two ways of cueing ourselves or two ways of cueing dancers if we're a teacher. And um, We'll go back to the terminology, internal and external focus, but please don't take them at face value. They do need a little bit more fleshing out. So our two choices are either to speak to the person. So I'm going to speak to you as, my, as if I'm your teacher, Ellie, and I will say, Ellie, I want you to drop your shoulders, to lift your knee, to straighten your back, to round your elbows, to, and I will be instructing parts of you personally. Mm -hmm. My alternative way of doing that, and I'll try to remember the list I just gave you, <laughs> <Good luck. laughs> is to speak about or what I call apersonally. So not to speak about what Ellie needs to be doing with her body, but actually to speak about what we desire from this movement. So I think I spoke about shoulders and legs and round, round arms and stiff back and things like that. So I would then be asking for a, a pressing against the floor and elongation through the body, uh, making perhaps just a circle with that shape there and making sure it's extending. Or So I would be describing the movement. And I can describe uh, the desired movement, let's say. Sorry, let's assume that you're not doing it quite as we would wish it to be. So you're performing it suboptimally, so I'm still trying to enhance your movement. Um, I'm going to describe what we desire from the movement. And that's called external. And when I do that, that's when all of these incredible physical and mental advantages kick in. I will explain why, but just so that you know that you have this choice all the time. Mm -hmm. 
And the other thing is to know that I know that as a dancer and a teacher, you're intuitively using external attention or focus. So you're speaking about movement quality, movement shape, movement form. You're using imagery to describe the movement quality you want. You're doing that quite a lot. You're doing it intuitively. You're doing it spontaneously. So that's great news because it means it's not alien to us. We are doing it, and what I'd be encouraging you to do is to notice when you are doing that and to see if there are places within your own training or your own coaching where you could do that more. The, the encouragement here is that we tend to use this. I'm putting words in everybody's uh, mouths. I do apologize because I would love to chat with you all and hear your experiences. But we tend to do this when we're in a comfortable situation, so in a style that we like, um, in a good day where we're doing some improv or some easy choreography or something. And when the pressure is on, so it's competition or it's exam time or it's performance time or we tend to revert to the other one. Mm. We think somehow that self-control is going to be better than body movement wisdom. And that's the biggest false friend, you say in French where I come from, that's the biggest false friend that is, that's absolutely not correct. So when the pressure is on, that's absolutely when you want to start to encourage yourself to stay in the speaking about the movement quality, the movement, uh, what we desire from that movement and keep it a personal, keep it away from the person. Right. Like the outcome we want to think about, why are we doing this? <laughs> Exactly. Or what do I, I call it what do I want from this movement, but it could be anything, quality, the interpretation, the emotion, the shape, the form. It can be extremely precise. It's not at all, um, if you think of Kung Fu, it's not at all fluffy. It's very, very precise direct. and fast yeah. and powerful and direct. So that the, you are using that strategy. It's a different strategy. And something that Gabriella Wolf always says is that, of course, you will improve by using the other internal focus because you're practicing the movement. But you won't improve anywhere near as fast or as effectively or as efficiently as you could do if you would be cueing yourself or cueing your students and your dancers with external focus cues. Okay. Well, given how important this is from what you've just said uh let's let's then make sure that we really understand this difference i first learned about this concept of internal and external focus from you at an iadams um, conference in basel during a movement session and it was very appealing to me and i enjoyed um when i returned home using this i looked more at some of wolf's research and then enjoyed sort of using this in the classroom more um, because I really love internal focus. I love movement mechanics. I enjoy experiential anatomy and somatics. Um, I mean, really, yeah, I really love technique and mechanics <laughs> of movement. Um, but I also completely have experienced this that, you know, it's the paralysis by analysis phenomenon and, um, so I enjoyed sort of coaching dancers and 
using that internal focus for certain things, but then also when we're dancing, moving towards that external focus and feeling the floor and connecting to the ceiling. Um, and those were the things that I took away that like external focus had to do yeah, with movement quality, but also like music, music is an external focus. Um, the floor, the, the shape, the space, right? Like how you carve through the space around you, right? That's imaginary, but it's external versus, you know, these things of the femur gliding in the hip socket, which I love to do lying on the floor. I think they have a function, (laughs) but are not so great when you're trying to, you know, strike a pose. Right. Um, so that was like my understanding. Do you want to flush that out more? Yes, is there something absolutely. to add? It, this is um, obviously uh, one of the frequently asked questions, and I, it's good news. It's good news. <laughs> so I'll preface it that way um, because also I work with therapists, physiotherapists as well. Uh, obviously, the work is heavily on what I call micro adjustment Mm -hmm. yes and uh, believe me working in classical ballet you're often working in micro adjustment you're not looking at macro you know do this like a shooting star Um, so (laughs) these theories yeah exactly that's when I say external attentional focus people will say well it's great you know you asked me to be a rainbow but I need to make (laughs) sure that the retire position is in the right position Um, that's really to um, to really misunderstand uh, the possibilities, the incredible possibilities here. Again, taking it back to my Eastern practice, there's incredible precision. I mean, obviously, if you have to, I I don't like to think of the idea of fighting somebody, but if you have an opponent, you need to be incredibly precise. Um, Let's go back to the definition of internal and external, and then I'll address all those things that you mentioned, Ellie, which is that, Internal is about um, you or your teacher taking your attention to controlling bits of your body. And um, in fact, what is happening is it invokes um, what's called the self or self-evoking schema. It really makes you very conscious of self and this impedes movement. It's very slow. Movement is very slow. It uses lots of energy, uh, so it's expensive. I call it expensive, and um, and it, it's not very effective. So that's our internal. Now I'm just going to touch on a few of the things you said. Let's let's think about therapies like physiotherapy or somatic practice, um, and then my micro adjustment in classical. So the great news is that things like touch. Um, obviously therapists use other things like tape or stickers or other stuff that I can put on the body and you can focus on the sticker or on the tape and that is an external attentional focus for a therapist or they'll use a ball or a, you know any other let's say teaching resource or therapeutic the wall, pushing like on the that. wall or something exactly. yeah. and you can take your focus into that and that's a bit clear or that's clearer that's an external attentional focus however you can use touch in exactly the same way What's important is how you draw the attention of the person to the stimulus that you want. So in other words, as a therapist, if you use your hand and you're using a directional pressure, let's say, 
I would ask you, first of all, can you feel the pressure? Can you feel the direction? All of those are external attentional focus. I'm not asking you to adjust a bit of your body. I'm asking you to sense my uh, information, my instruction. Um, the same, I could be working slightly more holistically. I could put warm hands on you if I'm wanting to dissolve some tension. And I can ask you, can you feel the heat from my hands? And that your uh, sensory perception of the, the touch or even afterwards the recall of the touch are all external attentional foci. So that's the first one. I'm just in the area of touch. It totally depends. If as a therapist or a teacher, I put my hands on and I say, can you, you know, can you drop your shoulder blade or can you, um, you know, can you manipulate that part of you? I'm taking your, fo your focus to what uh, human movement science would say was internal because you try to control yourself. Um, but I can be that close and just say, can you take your focus into my hand or my teaching resource or my prop or my, and um, so that's the first thing. That's when we're actually touching or manipulating. And that works for the physiotherapists. Um, if you're talking about experiential anatomy, um, the way that I've um, explained this or suggested, I mean, I'm, I'm just a person that suggests ways of working in external ways, which is that the way I understand as a dancer ex experiential anatomy is you start to understand the mechanics of it or the shape, right? You can explain to me the action of the hip and you show me a ball joint and a basin and you show me how that action works as a movement shape. So we stop necessarily identifying uh, a bit of our own body and ask ourselves to manipulate that bit of our own body and we start to visualize the mechanics. You can do that with muscles as well. You can do that with muscles if you've got, um, you know, complementary muscle groups and you're asking, uh, you know, you give me a few external attentional cues like a spiral this, extend out, reach out, and then you say, can you feel that spiraling action? Or can you feel that dropping action? All of that is external focus. Right. Oh, that's very helpful. Yeah, you're, working with, you're working with sensory. So my sensory perception of my body is external attentional focus. Whereas if you said to me, make sure you engage your pelvic floor or make sure that you engage your bicep or make sure that you drop your shoulder blade, uh, we're not doing that. We're, we're taking, it's a fine line, it's very fine. So really you've got to think about, am I adjusting the person or am I getting them to understand uh, proprioceptive sensation. Concept, yeah. Concept. Uh, you take a concept like turnout. Um, I know that's not an anatomical concept, but just that I, I would be taking their focus into a continuous spiral and then eventually into proprioceptively, what does that feel like? So that in a millisecond you can recapture that proprioception. Of course, that's how we work. 
in, in the end with our um, imagery dance science experts. Uh, I mean, I'm a I'm a now a 60-year-old dancer, so it's a lifelong of dancing. I've argued with our imagery experts that I no longer Im imagine because I don't need to. What you have is a kind of holistic proprioceptive sensation for all that information that the image originally gave you when you were training that you can recall in a millisecond. And, and that holist, uh, hologram of proprioceptive information is external attentional focus. Interesting. Yeah, this is great. The, um, yeah, we did. We have a podcast on motor imaging. Um, and I had similar feelings to you and um, Betsy Coker. Dr. Betsy Coker really helped me um, open up to because I felt similar to similarly to you that some of the imagery research wasn't really matching up with my lived in experience and she up she gave me some updates that really helped me yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> feel better yeah, about no, I, I was not trying to belittle it at all it's that I think there's a real progression that happens as a dancer where imagery or or the cueing let's say let's get away from imagery let's use external attentional focus we're just using some geometric shapes that a teacher is giving well at first you really need that triangle or that circle or that spiral but not after a certain amount of integration yeah then it's a lived experience and you have that proprioceptive sensation within the body and all of that is external if you can adjust by the proprioceptive sense rather than adjust by saying, oh, I must remember to straighten my knee or I must remember to, you know, pull up my pull up my back or whatever the instruction might be. If we we know from research that if professionals will be instructed with body parts, their performance will significantly deteriorate. Yeah. And they can't even do what they typically can do, which is usually how I start one of my workshops with a professional company. Because I will tell them that if I will instruct them using body part focus, they can no longer do what they habitually do every day. Right. And this makes us fall about laughing because they can't even <laughs> balance or pirouette. Right, yeah. Anything. No. So there's, yeah, there's research on this uh, area as well. What what then is the function of internal focus? I mean, it must. I guess it's just not related to performance. Outcome. So let's um, yeah, let's go there because that's that's important. That that actually takes us to another researcher, which is great to bring someone else in. Um, I'm going to bring in um, Professor Richard Masters. He's from New Zealand, um, and like me, he's an Eastern movement practitioner as well as a motor learning expert and attentional focus expert, and. What his suggestion is, is that we have uh, these two different functions that we're talking about. And he suggests that the external attentional one is a very sophisticated perceptual function that we had in almost prehistoric times. And that it predates conscious cognitive processes. Mm. Um, in other words, when we really needed optimum movement, so facing a tiger in life-death situations where we needed mm -hmm. to really have superhuman uh, precision or power or stamina, that we would use perceptual functions about the desired movement that did not at all involve conscious thinking. 
Right. And in fact, in our evolution, he suggests that conscious thinking about ourselves came at a later stage. Um, and we know from both neuroscience, Eastern movement practice, and the attentional focus research that when we think about the movement and it goes through the primary motor cortex, we are working absolutely not on optimum. We are far from optimum. The reaction time is slow, it's heavy, we use way too many muscles, um, and it's um, easily exhausted, in other words. This has got a name in uh, Eastern movement practice. In fact, the two states are, have got uh, different names for the initiation of the movement. So when you initiate from the attention, that's called uh, a yin energy, and we know 5,000 years of knowledge that that is optimum in terms of energy conservation and precision and speed. And the other is called Li, which is when you actually initiate from the muscles or from the body itself as your primary focus. Um, anyway, let's get back to the tiger situation. <laughs> uh, um, well, I always try to just say to dancers now, think of the tiger, because um, what Professor Richard Masters is suggesting is that in evolution, if you were worried about your spear throwing ability and you yeah and you instructed <laughs> yourself that you needed to lift your elbow or lower your shoulder or anything like that you were just way too slow and you were in fact yeah. dead so <laughs> evolutionarily those that would use this uh, sophisticated perceptual function for optimum movement were those that survived um, of course nowadays ballet and dance fortunately is not a life death <laughs> function but uh, nevertheless we have those two choices we can think about what we're doing and we can also try to bypass that and we bypass that with um, simple cues on the movement effect or the movement trajectory or the movement quality that we desire yeah let's get um, let's get more into that because um you mentioned in the preface of your book, congratulations, that's just out. Um, you mention something which I'm, I have certainly seen, and I'm sure many of my colleagues have seen in teaching dance, which is this, you know, really overwrought, what you called self-evoking schema. Um, yeah. This really overthinking things um, that leads to this deterioration of confidence and movement, I would argue, yes, and perfect. really reduces risk taking and really reduces um, like the function of the dance in terms of mm. reaching others and being in the world and sharing something, you know, it, it, I see students spiral into themselves, into this self evoking schema. Um, and it, it can be very hard to get them out. And so I'm um, eager to hear more about what those cues are. Where, where do, how do we draw them out of that place? Well, uh, first of all, I'd just like to like uh, give an analogy to what you're describing there. Uh, absolutely, totally correct uh, in terms of the effect of that process of going into inner control or interference, I'd like to call it. I'd mm. like to interfere with my movement and adjust it all the time. Mm -hmm. um, never mind the self-doubt and the other random thoughts that are going on. So if your, um, your brain was like your computer, so you've got a certain amount of hard drive, when we 
go through the thinking process via the self and the analysis and we try to adjust ourselves, we used huge amounts of megabytes. Just like when your computer slows down and you used to see that old sand uh, timer. Um, that's basically what's happening as you're dancing. And what shuts down immediately is other functions. Um, some dancers describe to me that they can't even breathe yeah. when you yeah. get to that point, let alone communicate or respond or be expressive. Um, so some of the first exercises I'll show people as they do something like that is they can't even hear the music. Mm -hmm. so we're using so many megabytes on this by go via the self and analyze what we're doing that we shut down other functions. So we shut down our sensory abilities. We shut down uh, uh, other kinds of perception. So that's perception to partner dancers, uh, Floor, interpretation, um, exactly communication, listening, all of those kind of things, which is why you get that sense of going more and more introverted into the self because we use that external capacity to sense and react to that. And conversely, when we use our, let's call it external or sophisticated perceptual function, we're using, I'm guessing, but we're using half the hard drive and in order to execute the movement. And the rest is then attributed to multitasking and sensory function. Um, so a dancer that will cue themselves via what do I want from this movement in an apersonal kind of way will be able to respond, interpret, be artistic, hear the music, respond to other people, as well as deal with stress um, because there's free megabytes <laughs> available for all those functions. So that's the that's the first thing that I that I wanted to say about the function of that. Um, how do we get them out of that place? Um, well, obviously, first of all, as a teacher, we need to not, let's say, emphasize that place because some, uh, some teachers maybe are thinking that additional control or focusing in on that kind of self-control is desirable. So it might not just be coming from the dancer or the student themselves, but might actually be coming from an external source uh, as well in addition. So we have to assume that we've got some students who are really struggling with uh, self or self-conscious analysis of movement as they're working. Um, it's through experimenting, I know it's going to sound um, slow, slow um, suspension of disbelief is where I start. Say, trust me a moment, suspend your disbelief, and let's just try this once differently. And one of the challenges for um, dancers, for all of us, I mean, I grew up with the internal focus <laughs> method, is that when you work with external focus, it feels like you are doing less. Mm -hmm. Because you've got all this kind of like free megabytes and <laughs> free cognitive reserve, you, you feel, and the movement itself also feels physically lighter, that you feel that you're not doing enough. Um, but knowing, in, in, in emphasizing as a teacher or coach that this is a very exacting movement strategy it's a discipline for high performance um, and that we at least start by trying. 
that we experiment with that within class. Um, the next thing that I do, perhaps for a slightly older students, certainly for professional dancers, is I'll give them an attentional challenge, uh, which is that, let's say, within a single exercise for the moment, not a very challenging exercise, but a single exercise to start to observe the self. And when we take attention to the process of attention, remember we started off by saying attention's a process and it's like a muscle that once we begin to be aware of what it's doing, uh, that's a massive step forward. Just even noticing what it's doing is a massive progress on this journey. Um, so the uh, challenge that I would give dancers is that we've got your on shame on across the floor, Ellie. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to ask myself about four questions in my challenge to the dancers. First of all, you're going to give me an answer, an honest answer, or you give yourself an honest answer. How much of that time were you able to stay with the cues that were given? Just start to, because it's not because you said, okay, we're going to do this like, uh, I can't think of a good one right now. We're going to use red diagonal lines through very dramatically through this combination. Um, it's not because you give me that, <clears throat> that I am successful at imagining it or uh, implementing it. Um, so I give myself, first of all, a score. How, how good was I at actually doing what was the optimum cue I was given? Or I gave myself depends on how we're working. Then I'm going to try to name or number the amount of times that I shifted to an internal focus adjustment or instructions. So how often in that one phrase across the floor did I say to myself, um, you know, point my foot or pull in my abdominals or quickly glance in the mirror and go, oh my god, uh, <laughs> look at that, right? So we're just being honest. So in this example I've got here, 50% of my time I managed to stay with the imagery or the uh, geometric cues that Ellie gave me, which is pretty good, right? That was quite a good score. Um, then I, I'm going to say that I, I at least four times got distracted in trying to adjust myself in that internal focus way that I grew up with. How many other thought interruptions were there? These take nanoseconds. Right. So you have to be really watching the radar to pick them up, right? This is just the beginning. This is the starting point to realize that there's a lot of movement going on that we're not aware of at all as we're dancing. So uh, thought interruptions like, um, I'll go just, I'm reading any, any old examples here. This teacher is always so quiet. I wonder what she's thinking about. Oh, God, I've got no power in my legs this morning. Oh, I never have high legs. It's so depressing. Or even positively, actually, that balance didn't look too bad. Oh, God, pirouettes coming up again. Oh, I shouldn't have eaten so much at lunchtime. Right. Any number of these thoughts, and taken uh, both uh, human movement science and Eastern movement practice, every one of these movements of thoughts takes power from now, takes power from the moment and takes power from the movement. Um, so the last question and the last scoring is you give yourself a score at how well you were able to bring yourself back on track. How well were you able to reset and 
take a breath out and go, okay, wait, red diagonals. Um, because that is really the skill, um, especially as a high performer, right? So the, men the mental ability, uh, we're not just suddenly all really cool and 100% of the time able to <laughs> focus in on the desired cue that we set for ourselves, but the ability to notice all that other activity, especially under pressure, and then have a technique to say, okay, back on track, back into the optimum cue, because I know that's going to re-establish my balance and my power and my precision. Um, and you do that by going back to the cue you've set for yourself or that you've been given, and usually on an out-breath, you re-establish that image or cue for yourself. The reason for the breath, sorry, I'm giving you lots of info here, um, but this is a real tool. The reason for the breath on the reset is that when the breath or breathing is the only moment that mind and body unite. So if we'll come back to the movement of our breath, we, uh, I was going to say force, but that's a horrible word, we draw the attention and the body into one place instead of into this dissipated, distracted place where we're really being drawn either through stress or pressure or other distractions all over the place and dissipating our energy. So with an out-breath, we, we aim to come back to the cue that we had. And you may do that multiple times during a movement phrase. But that's the skill. So with those dancers, most of us can understand that at whatever high performing level you are, whatever incredible performer you are, we all have moments where the pirouette sequence goes wrong. Right. There will be distractions. There will be distractions. Your partner will not arrive at the right time or there, you know, there's some additional stress in the public or the audience mm -hmm. or in personal life. Um, so it's not that those things don't happen because you become some famous dancer. They happen all the time. The thing that you need is this reset tool and the ability to see the distraction beginning to happen and catch it before it's really beginning to dissipate energy and attention. So there's the skill. And the time to do that is in class and in Personal and to do it from as early and as young as possible to realize that we don't have to be perfect, but we know we have to know how to use strategies and tools to get us back on track when things are not quite going as planned. And that makes a high performer. That's what makes Roger Federer, if I go into another field, it is not because he's got more muscles or more skills, knowledge, or, or even more practice time, but because he knows how to manage his own attention under that incredible pressure and how to reset. I totally concur. And I, and I also feel like, I mean, for me, that is the highest experience of dance for me. Like that is the, the joy. And I mean, when I, when I see students, I, I can see the moment their attention shifts. I can yes. see it through their whole selves, you know, and they'll be like, oh, you're right. That was, you know, and it's like, I, I see it also as that integration. I used to call it like the mind, the body and the psyche too. Cause it's like feelings like 
I can see when those three are really integrated and present versus when I can see, oh, he's going to trip on that cord. He's, his mind is somewhere else. And oh, there he goes, you know? Um, and I think as a performer, like that is the high for me. Like yeah. that's what is so gratifying about the experience of dancing is when you have that ability to find total integration and be in that moment and um completely and that's when you're going to be on on highest performance that's when you're going to be on your best your optimum whatever you know whatever best you can be you will there have uh, you know increased jump height and the cognitive re reserve to be artistic and interpret um because you uh bring yourself into the moment and that's what a cue is that's what an optimal cue is or mm -hmm. what an optimal imagery is is it's an anchor for the mind right uh, to keep all that other stuff at bay and uh, even things like imagine a uh, dance is not like this but imagine a long distance runner especially as we get tired it's very easy for the mind to wander. And so they will use their simple external attentional focus cue as this kind of anchor so that you don't have this loss of energy that you're talking about. And it's very real, exactly what you described. It's like a light flickering mm -hmm. in and mm -hmm. out. Yep. When, there's, when there's total attention in the moment or the movement, I like to call it, um, there's 100% energy and light the wattage in that moment and every movement of the mind away from that will uh, reduce that light or will flicker um, again in it's a movement practice we say where the mind will go um, like energy blood and nutrients follow so if you go back into your past or into something historic it shoots off at a tangent and you've lost your full power in that moment um, and it's usually milliseconds, that's what I'm saying. So it's that, that we, what, where we were was what do we do if we're very, um, if we've grown up in uh, internal focus, self-adjustment uh, and self-control and, and conscious thinking, um, is first of all to know that this other is not lighter or fluffier, or, uh, but is just as much a discipline and just as tough to um, develop that muscle that is the attention to become aware of it. But just the step of taking your attention to the process of your attention, what's it doing? What are your habitual attention go-tos? Even just that brings a, a flooding in of fresh energy into your performance and into your dance. Just that action. So it's... Uh, it's not a, an end point, but a constant uh, journey of, uh, you know, finding balance and uh, depends on lots of factors and external stimuli, of course, that you're managing. Great. Um, I want to talk before we go, um, because this is 2020, the year that dance went online, uh, I want to talk specifically about um, attention in a virtual environment because I know like I have not taken a lot of dance classes during this year I'm not super motivated to do that but when I have I'm really I I was made very aware of that toggling back and forth of my attention you know looking at the screen trying to learn a combination and then trying to embody it that shifting is very 
very difficult. Um, unlike when I'm in a studio and I'm learning a combination, I can kind of learn it and embody it in one all at once. Um, so that's really hard. And also students are really expressing an inability to stay focused, to maintain their attention. We, um, you know, the screen alone is yeah. really inhibiting yeah. them. So do you mind um, talking? I, I know this isn't like directly your area of expertise, but I'm sure you, <laughs> you've been noticing and thinking about it too. So what, what, what advice do you have or what observations do you have about this idea of attention in the virtual dance sphere with with virtual technology okay well let's um i'm going to speak from like two perspectives one as a dancer as a receiver and one as as a teacher if that that's fine the first thing to do is to be kind on yourself because suddenly trying to learn dance through a virtual through virtual technology is as if you were suddenly sensorily impaired overnight Mm. because learning dance is so much more than the form a two-dimensional form or using our eyes therefore and our ears to listen to instruction that we learn in a real class a live class it's like the difference I'm going to go back to another analogy but it's like the difference between being in that kind of surround sound cinema experience uh, versus trying to watch something on a very old, bad TV with <laughs> poor reception, right? mm-hmm. um, in terms of sensory information. And um, what you would learn in a real class, so much of what is being taught is being taught by transmission. It's not being taught through words or even visual shapes and uh, combinations. So what you're transmitting uh, or what you're picking up from peers and from teacher is everything from the quality to the energy to the amount of appropriate effort in that movement to the breath in that movement, the attack, um, the intention and the emotion within that movement. And none of those can we capture. Those are all, we're going back to our sensory perception again, and, and all of those are external attentional foci when we're in the dance class. Um, and we don't have any of those. So you really should be kind, first of all, on yourself that it's, it's totally normal. Although you're looking at a dance routine, all of those other dimensions that we would be uh, having in our sophisticated perceptual function that Professor Richard Masters describes are absent. So that's just a kind of like, start don't there. Be too, don't be too hard on yourself. There's, there's a first thing. It's not at all the same. There's no comparison, even if somehow superficially the content seems the same. Um, So that would be the very first thing that I would say. Then as a teacher, and again, thank you, Ellie, for saying this this is not my expertise. I'm not some kind of virtual teaching expert. Um, But what I have found is that I need to plan to teach very differently. I can't just simply do the class that I would have done in the studio and go, hey, what the hey, we're doing it on Zoom. So um, I'm going to take a different kind of dancing public now. I work with seniors and seniors up to 90 years of age and the reason that that's interesting in this question is that they anyway start to lose attentional function. Never mind, never mind the computer. Um, So that's a challenge for them. 
So in terms of teaching, you have to teach um, in order to sustain attention. And we do that by teaching with lots, of, first of all, with lots of different kinds of teaching styles so that the task is not always the same throughout the class, uh, meaning um, I'm not just giving and you're receiving and you're trying to emulate or pick up what you can through the screen. So I'd need to introduce different teaching styles. I'll give some examples there. You could ask people to work in pairs by pinning each other on Zoom and uh, working in kind of like, I was going to say ballet buddies, because again, I'm working in ballet, but you know, dance buddies, so you actually do the exercise together, just the two of you, and pick up through um, observation and mirror working, which again is external attentional focus. Um, new qualities uh, by working with a different focus on that one person. You can use the breakout function, so there might be a, a non-shamal or something that's got improv in it as well, in which you break out and work it out, and as a teacher you stand back for a moment and give them um, some period of time in smaller groups to figure something out. Um, even if it's, even if that's uh, you're working on form and precision, that might be um, correction uh, within the group or observation performance observation within those small groups. Then working with my seniors, I found I've got to work with paying attention to the different kinds of learning styles. So I'll use visual stimuli, we'll use art as well as stimuli for moving. Um, obviously musical stimuli, not just music as accompaniment, but really listening to the music and discussing aspects of it that we then take into the dance. Um, having a bigger theme, so again with the seniors we'll often be working on a piece of repertoire that's got uh, an interpretation, has a emotional or historical context. So all of those um, are different kinds of learning challenges but they sustain attention as you shift between them. So uh, all, I'm just suggesting that that's a way of renewing motivation and renewing attention. If you keep thinking of, uh, literally, if you were a filmmaker, you'd think of changing the focus. Okay, now we're up front in the camera in your face. Now we're in pairs, now we're in small groups, now we're back in the full class. Um, so you really shift uh, the focus of your work. But then also thinking of different kinds of stimuli that perhaps you're not bringing into a normal technical class um, that you can really focus in on. Even artistry of a pianist or something like that, I will discuss uh, the breath and how we can pick up on the breath of the musician. Um, so there's many different things that can be worked on, but all of those take the attentional, refresh the attentional focus of the learner who's not just trying to peer into a screen at what form you're doing and copy. And if the teacher isn't doing those, um, using those creative strategies, uh, how how do you suggest that students can sort of produce that effect for themselves? Um, I, I think probably, I'm, I'm having to think about putting myself in that same scenario. I think actually probably stepping away from the screen keying into the musicality and the music quality that you're hearing and perhaps the words and the cues that you're hearing and working much more implicitly for yourself. Yeah, 
rather than trying to um, mimic or emulate or, or work for the observation of the teacher and are working explicitly for the teacher. So I think it has to become um, a personal work. Certainly that's what's happening at professional levels. So when I'm seeing professional classes online, there's much more of a, a, a concession and an understanding that it has to become a, a much more of a personal exploration than a um, for the teacher kind I, of work. I agree. I think letting and even not for the teacher but even for your your old self who used to dance in the studio like letting go of those goals um and really making some goals and movement objectives that are appropriate for the environment in which you're working yeah you know whether that just be like i just am going to see my space and you know, I just felt like I had to be like, I just don't really care that much if I get the combination just right. <laughs> like I just, I'm going to have to let that go. Right now I'm going to just think, okay, at least I'm moving through space and I'm going to try to get the, the movement quality that it's being coached and yes. let everything else go. Um, yeah. I don't... You, but you're able to work on other things. You're able to work on your musicality. It's a great moment to work on your using of your external attentional focus. In fact, so on all the, the sensory information that's coming back or the musicality that, um, you know, that well, hopefully the music quality is okay with this teacher. We were this notional teacher that was not doing any of this different kind of teaching stimulus. Um, and if you really are getting nothing from except the content from from the teacher, then yes, I think um, establishing a personal goal, either for that week or that session, uh, about what you personally would like to work on or focus on, will again uh, make it feel a little bit more satisfactory. Great, thank you for um, indulging me that very 2020 oh, it question. Is. It is. <laughs> Um, so to close, um, do, could you tell us, um, like what's next in this field? You, you've now written the book. So what's next <laughs> for you personally, but also for, um, for attention? What do you think is on the horizon? Okay, cool. Well, two things I think that I'll, I'll mention which is, uh, we didn't really talk about this, but the uh, research findings and um, application in dance is appropriate for all skills levels, all age groups, and including um, those with movement challenges or movement difficulties. It can also be neuro, neuromuscular difficulties or things like uh, attentional deficit hyperactivity disorder or um, Parkinson's stroke, multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy. So all of this work is provides brilliant uh, practical applicable tools to work in adapted dance practice. I certainly do that. I've never written it up and I do teach it on a couple of programs, master's programs. Um, but I think that I would really like that we recognized, uh, a, you know, in a much more broader way, what incredible tools these are for working with movement challenges and also learning challenges. So, um, in fact, autism and other kind of learning, you know, difficulties of learning um, are really facilitated 
with uh, an external attentional focus. And the class is rendered inclusive, so there's no separation by ability, like you know, all those who can over here and all those who can't over there. Um, everybody can imagine and everybody can work towards the movement intention. Um, and so there's a great kind of unifying uh, effect that that has on um, an inclusive or adapted class. So that's that's a, a direction that I'd like to make sure that um, I you know do a little bit of sharing and educational work in. And um, Gabriella Wolf herself, of course, has moved on and has moved on to look at the relationship of attentional focus to intrinsic motivation for mm. learning. Mm. And, that makes um, a lot of sense. And this is also uh, deliciously brilliant because all of her um, references to what she'd call intrinsic motivation are totally holistic. In other words, there are ways that you would always have wanted to be working in your teaching in terms of giving choices, supporting autonomy, supporting implicit learning, etc. And so the brilliant thing here, this is called, um, she's published this in 2016 and I will we'll give some references if you like Ellie for the podcast. Um, it's called Optimal Theory which is an anagram of optimizing performance using intrinsic motivation and attention. Uh, for learning, but what we know is that the uh, intrinsic motivational strategies are rendered more effective with the application of external attentional focus in a kind of virtuous circle or cycle, so that the more we apply both motivational strategies and the more we apply the external attentional focus, um, the more benefits uh, are measurable, uh, palpable, and remember when we're talking about that, we're talking about not just feel-good benefits, we're talking about hard fact benefits that we can measure jump height or speed or, um, so this is um, a big plus to convince artistic directors that maybe they they need to think about evolving the way that they um, address dancers and companies in general um, in terms of autonomy and choice. I love that. Um, That's a crusade. That's a crusade for me. There. <laughs> um, yeah, we will include some resources on our resource page on our website, including a link to your book. Um, and what closing thoughts do you want to leave us with? Oh, closing thoughts. Yeah, that often, I, I mean, I'm not, um, my roots are not in science. My roots are in artistry and in performance. Um, so science would always have us believe in some kind of black or white scenario. So like 100% external attentional focus is obviously desirable and, um, and that would give optimum performance. But I'd just like to leave us with the thought that we're all human and there's no such thing as perfect. Um, it's simply a journey. And as you bring your attention to your own attention and start to realize what are some of the choices you're making probably unconsciously, um, that's already a massive You're going to experience renewed energy and even renewed motivation and enjoyment in your dancing just with that observation. Um, the more at external focus, excuse me, that you can bring into your practice, the more benefits you're going to feel from that, the more hard fact benefits, the more 
physical benefits you're going to feel and learning benefits because of cognitive reserve. So it's a gradual process. It's a ratio or a balance of how much of this can I introduce. And um, I'm going back to your 2020 question, which is uh, in live teaching, I can use really a lot of external attentional focus, maybe even classes of as much as 90%, maybe even 100% external attentional focus with my lovely senior dancers. But online, I'm right back to using internal focus uh, instructions for those dancers who are suffering with their attention on the end of my Zoom link. So it's a, a constant balance, a constant attention to your own choices um, and take the time and be patient to explore that new language. Well, thank you so much, Claire. It's been a pleasure to talk to you about this topic, which I find fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Claire. You're very welcome. Thank you. On behalf of Marissa and myself, I, Ellie Kushner, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewall Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to Dancewell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help pay for our SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a donation to Dancewell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website, www.dancewellpodcast.com. And if you have any questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.